Good morning, LCF. Good morning. You need to cut your coffee down next Sunday a little bit for Randy. You're going to be so wired up, you won't be able to hear anything. I told first service, this is more like a flea market in here than a church. <laughs> okay, good to see you. You know, uh, when you're the rent-a-teacher, you have to bring your own podium up here. Have you noticed that? It's like, no frills. All right, today, the redemption of Israel. We're talking about Ruth to 1 Samuel 8. And all we have to do is cover all of Ruth and eight chapters of 1 Samuel in 30 minutes, which is two and a half minutes per chapter. No problem, right? All right. What we're going to do is preview uh, some of the things you'll be studying, hopefully, for the rest of the week and draw your attention to a couple of themes in there that, you know, we think are important. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, this being, you know, the Bible initiative and all, uh, open up to um, the story of Ruth, which is right after Judges. This is a major part of the redemption of Israel, as you will see. Now, there's this tendency we all have to disconnect Israel from us. Don't do that. The redemption of Israel is also your redemption. We're going to show you an important part of that this morning, where God planned out, as he always does, and made something happen very important in the lineage of Jesus, all right? Now, you may or may not remember, it was almost two years ago to the day that we did the story of Ruth. We did a whole teaching on just that book. And uh, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I showed you how to make a barley bread frisbee. Anybody remember that? <laughs> I tried to make barley bread, which seemed like it was really easy, you know, from the story of Ruth, but it's really hard. I don't know how they do it, but they, I didn't get it right. Uh, it was a major fail. Two of the main characters in the story of Ruth are Naomi and Ruth. Now, a little bit of the backstory here. Naomi's husband is named Elimelech, and this takes place in Bethlehem. There's a famine. So Elimelech decides to take his family, which is Naomi and his two sons, Malon and Kilian, and go from Bethlehem down into the, to the Jordan River Valley and back up the other side to the land of Moab. Very strange decision. Moab is a pagan country. They do not worship the God of Israel. And as the crow flies, Bethlehem and Moab, it would be this way, I guess, are only 35 miles apart. Did he think there was no famine in Moab, you know, 35 miles away? Apparently he did. Anyway, they go to Moab and they live there at least 10 years, according to the narrative. During that time, Elimelech dies... Malon dies and Killian dies. Now, Malon and Killian have already married Moabite women, which you do not do as a faithful Israelite, but they've already married Moabite women. One of them was Ruth. All right? Naomi is devastated by this. Now, if you're a Jewish woman, this is the worst of all worlds. No husband, no sons. No way to make a living, and she finds herself destitute. Okay? She hears by the grapevine that there is food now back in Bethlehem. In fact, Bethlehem, that word means the house of bread. All right? So she makes the decision. Now, remember, this is a 70-mile trip, and we've got a picture of Moab here. Uh, isn't that the next one up, Moab? Yeah. 
This is the kind of country that two women, because Ruth says, I'm going with you, and Ruth converts to the God of Israel. She says, I'm going with you. This is the kind of country they're traveling through. And they decide to go back. Naomi decides to go from Moab back to Bethlehem. That is 70 miles on foot carrying everything you have and a bottle of water. All right? They only made it by the grace of God because this land is full of bandits. It's very difficult to travel in, etc. They made it. They get back to Bethlehem. When they get there, they don't have anything except basically the clothes on their back and whatever few possessions they had in their packs, all right? But they do have provision of God. They do have a benefactor, benefactor in Bethlehem, and his name is Boaz. Boaz is actually Naomi's relative. She, he is related to Elimelech somehow in there. And he is what the Bible calls their kinsman redeemer. Anybody remember hearing that phrase about Jesus? Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. That's where it comes from. All right, long story short, I love the story. Long story short, Ruth, the young widow, they need to eat. It's harvest time, all right? So she goes to a field, and uh, the harvesters always leave some barley behind for the poor, all right? Because you can make bread out of the barley grain, and you can live on that. It's very nutritious. So she goes to this field. Now, I have a picture of uh, a field. I actually took this picture in Bethlehem. It's amazing to me. <laughs> they still herd sheep the way they did 3,000 years ago, and that is, uh, that might be a field of barley. We were there pretty early in the summer, so that still could be barley down there. Um, but Ruth was picking up stalks of barley after the gleaning team already went through, okay? Now, um, Boaz is the unmarried, okay? Plot thickens. Boaz is the unmarried relative, and uh, he takes careful notice of the righteous Ruth. Now, uh, as we all know, there are different characters in small towns. For Ruth to come back as a young widow and be a righteous woman who takes care of her mother-in-law, Naomi, and, you know, does not do untoward things. I mean, she is a class act, and Boaz, Boaz notices that right away, all right? And he protects her from the other workers who are predatory, out there in the fields, all right? God's in this story start to finish. We have a picture of a painting here done by Israeli artist Dennis Bacchus, and I think this captures the moment when Boaz and Ruth notice each other, I mean, really up close for the first time, maybe, all right? And we said, you know, Ruth might have been a poor Moabitess, but she might have been a good-looking poor Moabitess, Okay. <laughs> And we said, you know, Boaz is a middle-aged man of God, but he wasn't a blind middle-aged man of God, okay? So uh, they marry. They marry. Way to go, Boaz, you know. They marry, and they have a boy named Obed. And Obed grows up and has a son named Jesse. And Jesse grows up and has a son named David. And as we all know, David took out dumber than a rock Goliath, no pun intended, and became the great king of Israel. So, a thousand years later, in a little town of Bethlehem, who is born? 
one of the descendants of Ruth, the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. All right. That's the best human love story in the Old Testament, I think, my opinion. Great chapter in the redemption of Israel. God has it all planned out, executes on time. Exactly right. All right. That takes us to 1 Samuel and the redemption of Israel theme. Um, now, the account begins, begins with the birth of Samuel. And um, we're going to see later that Samuel was one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, uh, of, the, of the entire Bible. He was always 100% correct in what he said to Israel. You have never known, I have never known, a 100% correct biblical prophet in my lifetime. And you probably never will. But they existed in Israel. They knew God. And they said things that were amazing. You know, Isaiah predicted a king by name, Cyrus, 150 years before Cyrus was born. That's astounding. All right, we're going to talk about the birth of Samuel, but we're going to talk about the death of Samuel before we do, because I need to point this out. This is at a location in Israel. It's not far from Jerusalem. Called, it used to be called Mizpah. And on the top of that rock pile is actually a mosque now. The middle part is an old Byzantine or Crusader church, which would have been Christian, in the bottom level of that, there is a corner that is a synagogue. Samuel is buried. That's actually Samuel's tomb in the inset picture there with the little uh, Star of David on the wall there. That is actually Samuel's tomb. Only in Israel would you find a mosque and a, and a Christian, uh, ruins of a Christian church and a synagogue in the basement of the same structure. Okay? But that's the way it is in Israel. In fact, Muslims come to the Tomb of Samuel as well, all right? Okay. Um, we have a close-up of that tomb, too. I think, yeah, this is, this is the way it looks without that curtain on there that they put over there with the scriptures and stuff on it. This is typical of, uh, of tombs of the time. Uh, Samson's tomb looks very much like this, and his father's tomb, Manoah, and what is purported to be the tomb of David in Jerusalem looks like that as well. They encase it in kind of a concrete and then whitewash it. And uh, they tend to look like that. But uh, many of the rabbis from J Jerusalem come to this site and uh, read scripture, etc., at the tomb of Samuel. Okay. Um, T.A. said, Samuel, last judge. The last judge of Israel. And uh, he's raised up in a time of great crisis in Israel's history as both a prophet and a judge. And, and T.A. pointed out he's not a king but he's a prophet and a judge. And he knew the danger of a king. We'll see that later on. The Israelites had this really short memory. If ever there was a nation you could say was ADD, it had to be Israel, you know? They just could not focus on what God told them to do. They could for a while, and then you know what they went right back into? Idolatry. Over and over and over they blew it and went back into idolatry. It sent them into captivity two times. You know, they were nearly destroyed as a nation because of idolatry. After all the promises of God, all the things he showed them, no, they had to do it their way. Reminds me of another nation that I know about. 
All right, we'll read some of Samuel's warning to the people about a king later on. All right, to Samuel's birth. The word says, there was a man named Elkanah, E-L-K-A-N-A-H, Elkanah in the hill country of Ephraim. Ephraim runs from about Jerusalem up the middle of Israel. It's kind of this ridge, this stony ridge. There's two kinds of hills in Israel, stony hills and stony hills with a little vegetation. It's only two kinds. It's not like you see, you know, forests anywhere. It's, it's pretty rocky and barren. Um, we got a map of, yeah, there it is. All right. Um, just to give you some idea of what we're talking about, Jerusalem's down here in this lower red box, just for uh, your orientation. Up in the upper right box is Shiloh. Now, that's where you're going to see Samuel spend a lot of his life in the tabernacle. We'll get there. And I've also got a box around the Tower of Aphek because it was a big, important battle there. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But this whole area from Jerusalem to Shiloh is only about 20 miles. Jerusalem is a tiny country. Uh, all the, most of the biblical stuff you read about took place in a section of Israel that's no more than about 150, 200 miles long at the most. It is a small country. They're in the news all the time. And you could put Israel easily in the state of Missouri. You know, I mean, wow. Okay, Ephraim, or Elkanah, hill country of Ephraim. All right, he is, um, Elkanah's a polygamist. He's a polygamist. He has two wives. We know the punishment for polygamy. It's having two wives. Okay. <laughs> I'll pay for that later. Sorry, sorry. Well, it was literally true here because Elkanah, was, one of his wives is named Penina, and the other is named Hannah, all right? Now, Penina has given Elkanah children. Hannah has not. Hannah is barren. And since it's obvious to Penina that Elkanah loves Hannah and does not love her, there was big trouble. Hannah was tormented by Penina all the time to the point that she wept with longing for a child. And when they would go up for the sacrifices, you know, to, to Shiloh, she would not even eat. You know, she would just sit there silently. And we've got a photo here. They actually know, everything's disputed in Israel, but this is a 90% known, that this is where the tabernacle of God was in Shiloh. Now, in the main picture, you can see the hill of Shiloh way up behind this. But this is a place that appears to have been leveled out by the Israelites, and they found a foundation there that's almost exactly the size that would be needed for the tabernacle. I mean, there's no other place around there that it could be other than this. So they're pretty sure that this is where it was. And in the tabernacle of God, what's in there? Yep, you Raiders of the Lost Ark fans. Yeah, the Ark of God is in there, all right? And um, the tabernacle of God was at this location for many years. There's a a mock-up that they have done of it showing the curtains around there and the uh, altar out there and the laver where they would wash. And then the Ark of the Covenant is in that uh, tented square building. And that's sort of what they think the Ark of the Covenant looked like from the description. That's acacia wood. It's, uh, it's uh, plat- plated with uh, gold, and the lid is like solid gold. I mean, that thing must have weighed a ton. I, it must have taken at least four people you know, with the poles, lifting it up, carrying it around. It must have been uh, very heavy, but that's, that's where it was. 
And there's a description of that in Exodus 25, telling you how they did that. Shiloh was the site of the annual sacrifice at the tabernacle in that uh, tent. Now, they altered that later and put doors on it because it says Samuel opens the doors of the tabernacle. So when you get to that, uh, that's what that means. One year, when Elkanah's family and his two wives went up to the tabernacle at Shiloh, Eli was the priest up there. Eli, he's getting to be an old guy, E-L-I. One year, Hannah prayed to the Lord Almighty with all of her heart. And she said, she made a vow. She said, Lord, do not forget your servant, but give me a son. And I will give him to the Lord for life. That was a huge commitment. The thing she longed for the most with all of her heart, she was willing to give back to the Lord. Now, if you need to see this as a parent, you think about, you know, you praying for a son, having that son at long last and bringing him up to LCF, giving him to Tim, dedicating him to LCF. The kid would have to run every day. (laughs) And to Chick-fil-A. I mean, uh, wow. Well, the priest, Eli, when Hannah's up there praying fervently, the priest sees her, and he thinks she's been drinking beer. He thinks she is drunk. Yes, beer goes back 4,000 years. It was called 1 Samuel Adams. (laughs) How is it, second service, you got that, you know? I ask myself that, okay. But Hannah says, not so, to Eli. She says, I've been praying out of my grief. And it was important that day that Eli noticed her praying because she then went home and did conceive a son and named him Samuel. And when he was weaned, and by the way, no refrigeration back then. You weren't weaned until you were two or three years old. Connie explained the issues of that to me. (laughs) I did not get it. You know, uh, (laughs) Um, anyway, Hannah keeps her promise after he is weaned at two or three. He is given to Eli uh, to serve the Lord all the days of his life. And he's also set apart as a Nazir or a Nazarite, meaning he never cut his hair. Can you imagine never cutting your hair all your life? I mean, in the winter, you could wrap it around your neck as a muffler, I suppose, you know. But that was the way it was, and he was set apart that way as a Nazarite, all right? Hannah then speaks or sings Hannah's prayer, which says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. There's a little tender side note here. Whoever wrote First Samuel put this in there, and I'm glad they did. Every year, Hannah would bring, I hope I can tell you this. Every year, Hannah would bring a little robe for Samuel to wear under his priestly ephod. She loved that kid with all her heart. By the way, (laughs) Hannah had five other children in addition to Samuel. After that, I always wondered if they ever said, you know, Samuel thinks he's God's gift to Israel. Yeah, he is. (laughs) That was was speculation on my part. All right, Samuel is an intern in the tabernacle, basically, all right? And he is everything Eli's sons are not. This is incredible. 
The word in chapter 2, verse 12 says that Eli's sons were wicked men with no regard for the Lord. How can you be the two sons of the priest of the tabernacle and have no regard for the word of the Lord? But they were. They demanded and got sacrificial meat from the people who came to Shiloh. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas. And apparently their irreverence and their dishonesty and immorality was legendary. You can read about it in there. So much so that Eli the priest finally, at long last, rebukes them for their ungodly behavior. Of course, they do not listen. They should have because the writing was on the wall at that point for them. A man of God came from another part of Israel to Eli and chastised him severely about Hophni and Phinehas and his failure basically to be a father. And he said, this is one of those 100% prophecies, you either get it right or it's totally wrong. He said, Phinehas and Hophni will die on the same day. And that prophecy very quickly came to pass. Chapter 3, you have probably read this in, uh, uh, probably heard about this in, in uh, Sunday school, where Samuel, uh, he's, he sleeps in the tabernacle. He's in there with the Ark of the Lord, okay? And if you remember Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Ark of the, Ark of the Covenant was like a radio to God, okay? Sure enough, one night he hears Samuel, Samuel. He thinks it's Eli. He runs in there and he says, yes, and Eli says, no, my son, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. He goes back to bed. Happens a second time. Same result. And Eli goes, no, I, I didn't call you. Happens a third time. This time, Eli finally starts getting it. God may be trying to, you know, conduct a conversation with this young man. So he says, you know, this time he said, you know, say, here I am. Here I am. You know, your servant is listening. All right, now get this. I've overlooked this many times. The fourth time, and we've got this as a scripture, it says in uh, 1 Samuel 3, 10, it says, The Lord came and stood there. Think about that. You're 12 or 13 years old. The Lord came and stood there, calling as at other times Samuel, Samuel. What did he see? Well, he saw Jesus before we knew him as Jesus. That's how it works, all right? Um, you know, Paul says in Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. So that's what Samuel saw. Samuel answers just the way Eli told him to do, and then God tells Samuel, a 13-year-old kid, the exact same thing the prophet told Eli about the fact that Hophni and Phinehas were going to die on the same day. He tells Samuel that, and the next morning Samuel, Eli says, okay, what did the Lord say? And, and Samuel has to say, Phinehas and Hophni uh, and Phinehas are going to die on the same day. Wow. But that was his anointing, folks, by the direct hand of God as a 100% prophet of Israel. That's when it happened says the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, Samuel 3.19, and none of his words fell to the ground. He was the real deal. All right, chapter 4, the true spiritual condition of Israel is revealed here. God, they can't get it together. 
The Israelites go out to fight the Philistines. Not uncommon. They were always fighting Amalekites or, you know, Philistines or somebody. They lose about 4,000 men that day. And so they decide to go and get the very sacred Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle and take it into battle. It's kind of like a, you know, good luck charm. And guess who helps them go get the Ark? Hophni and Phinehas. Aren't you surprised that that would happen? Eli did not stop them. Why, I do not know. He just um, didn't step in. Well, everybody in the Israelite army, they confidently march out into battle carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and they are slaughtered. 30,000 men go down in that battle with the Philistines. That's a lot. 30,000. And guess who else dies in the battle? Hophni and Phinehas, as prophesied. Exactly. Eli is told the news, and he falls over backwards, breaks his neck, and he dies too on the same day. All right. It closes, that chapter closes with the words, the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. The Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. How is that even possible? But it is. Well, Philistines, be careful what you wish for. All right? You've got the radio to God, and you're pagans. Not a good combination. In chapter 5, we see that having the Ark and keeping it, two different things. Here's a map of where they took it, down to Ashdod. There were like five cities of the Philistines. You hear a lot about Gaza now. Gaza was one of them. Ashdod, Ashkelon, uh, Ekron, Gath, I think is the other one. But that's where the Philistines lived, was down there on the plains by the Mediterranean Sea. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was taken. And you can see up there, Aphek, up there, straight to the left of Shiloh. I pointed that out a while ago. That's where that big battle was. So they carried it the Ark of the Covenant, down to Ashdod. All right, so they take the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in the temple of Dagon, in front of Dagon, you know, who's like a statue. I don't know what he looked like, but sitting there. And they all go to bed. They think, yeah, we did it this time. Wake up in the morning, go to their temple, and guess what? Dagon's laying on his face in front of the Ark of the Covenant. I'm sure somebody came up with an excuse. Well, that must have been a minor earthquake, you know, in the night. That's why that happened. Okay. They put him back up. Next morning, same thing, only this time Dagon's head is broken off and his hands are broken off. They're going, ah, what's up with this, okay? And then they also are becoming afflicted with tumors, all right? And they say, well, you know, uh, why don't we send the Ark of the Covenant to Gath? That'd be a good place for it. So they send it to Gath. And the Gathites also were afflicted with tumors, so they sent it to Ekron. And the Ekronites are also afflicted with tumors. Philistines, duh, finally figure out that they are under the wrath of God, and they devise a plan to send the ark back to Israel. So what they do is they build a cart, and uh, they also mold uh, several gold rats and gold tumors and put them in a chest as a kind of a guilt offering. Oh, boy, you'd want to receive that, wouldn't you? That goes on the cart, and then there are two cows that are connected to this cart. They lift the ark up using the poles, put it on the cart, and they, nobody is accompanying this, okay? They sort of aim it at Israel up the road. 
And they're all going, go home, go home. And the cows take it directly to Beth Shemesh. Nobody driving them or anything. The cows know exactly where they're supposed to go. They take it to Beth Shemesh. Israelites are glad to get their good luck charm back. What do they do? Open the lid and look in. The Ark of the Covenant. At least 70 of, of them die instantly. Israel, come on. <laughs> you know. Oh, my gosh. So they send it to uh, Abinadab, who's one of the sons of Saul in another town in Kiriath-Jerim, and it stays there a long time, and nobody opens the lid. Okay. Not a good idea. The people mourn all of this. They are starting to finally get it, sort of. They mourn this. They turn to Samuel for guidance, and Samuel says in verse 3, really important scripture, says, if, if, got the, yeah, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods. Rid yourself of this idolatry that takes you down time after time and serve him only. And then Israel did what they always, always, always did. It says they put away their Baals and Ashtaroths, their gods, their idolatry. I want to say and add a phrase for a while because they get them out again. They never truly buried or broke up or burned their idols, nor have we. There's a lesson in here, folks, for us, and it's really important. You and I, we all have idols in our lives. I know guys that have idols in their garages. Their car, that classic car, is an idol. It's exactly the same thing. All right. Um, the Philistines attack again at Mizpah. Now, it's the same place where Samuel's tomb is now. All right. I think it's interesting, this connection between all the stuff that happens at Mizpah. And then Samuel is buried there. Philistines attack him again. This time, Samuel cries out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, and a miracle happens. It began to thunder so loud, and the Philistines are coming up the valley at them. These are ruthless, brutal, bloodthirsty warriors. These are guys that sacrifice their children in the fire. They're coming up the valley toward Mizpah, at the Israelites, Samuel prays, and it begins to thunder so loud that the Philistines cannot stand it. Hardened warriors cannot stand thunder. I think it was God playing bass. You know, I don't know. <laughs> that was a joke. Come on, work with it. <laughs> but it was so loud, it was like painfully loud. And they turn and run. And, of course, the Israelites follow them, chase them, kill many of them. And, uh, you know, there's no counterattack. Samuel continues to walk his circuit, you know, from up to Shiloh, Bethel, back down to Ramah. He was a circuit judge, okay? Uh, and then back to home to Ramah. Okay, they can't all be gems, you know? I mean, come on. All right, chapter 8, Samuel makes a mistake. It's not a prophetic mistake, but it is a personal mistake. The word says he's like, you know, really old, 65 by now, right? And knowing that the elders of Israel were going to insist on a king, and he did not want Israel to have a king, he knew all the things that would be wrong with that. And he tells them. Knowing that was probably going to happen, he, and it, they, he appoints his two sons to be judges. 
he appoints them. Now, not anoints in the priestly role, because that's a whole different word for Israel, but he appoints. Their names were Joel and Abijah. They did not walk with God. How can you be the two sons of Samuel, the great prophet of the Old Testament, and not walk with God? But they did not, just like the sons of Eli did not walk with God. All right. We can speculate here that he was so worried about Israel taking on a king that he did that. But he knew it wasn't going to go that way, and God tells him it's not going to go that way. He prophesied to the people. He said, you know what? You're going to lose everything you have, sons, daughters, flocks, fields, orchards, everything to a king. You'll become slaves. And that's uh, exactly what happened. And you'll see it in Randy's teaching next week with Saul, what, what happens there. Okay, worship team, you can come on back up. Samuel obeyed the word of God every time. Even when he didn't want to say, all right, Israel, you're going to have a king. He said it anyway because God said, say that. He said, all right. What's the lesson here? God is faithful. In spite of Naomi's great sorrow in Moab, she says, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. In spite of her great sorrow, he brings her back to Bethlehem and she becomes one of the great grandmothers of the Messiah. All right. God's faithful. Hannah's prayer is answered with one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. He is faithful. The redemption of Israel continued with Samuel. While the people refused righteousness over and over and over, they were rescued from Babylon and the Messiah came just the same. We're amazed when we think about our own idolatry. The Lord is relentless with us. Relentless. Never gives up on us. All right? All the way to the cross. The story goes all the way to the cross. And the story goes all the way to this morning. You. In here. This is not detached from your life. This is as much a part of your life as it was theirs. Let's worship him. Thank you. Please stand.